Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3? We've been going through Genesis, and before we get into... Hi, Bob. Whoa. An aus, auspicious row. But you don't know what auspicious means, right? It's good to have you guys here this morning. Friends from my brother's church up in, uh, where is it? Toledo. Um, would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3? Dear friends, um, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And Genesis means literally what? Anybody know? It means beginnings. I have a journal that I've subscribed to for years, and it's called First Things. And so these are, in this book, these are the first things. Now, I want to warn you about something this morning, and it's something that's insidious. And you say, what does insidious mean? And I say, insidious is, is the serpent when he tempted Eve and Adam. He came at Adam as through a mine underneath, deceptive, sneaky. There is a sneaky danger in this world today that I want you to learn to be very sensitive to. And here's this danger. The danger is that we are so selfish and so fixated on ourselves that we have lost the capacity to know the difference between truth and error. To us, the only truth is what we like and helps us. If something's helpful, it's truth. And if something's unhelpful, it's not true, right? So I was thinking about this this morning, and I'm in my office, and out in in the outer office is are two men who are having a conversation. One man is describing to the other men the fact that he's trying to teach his students The law of contradiction. And I perked my ears up, you know, I'm listening to him. And he says, you know, my students don't know that because they like something doesn't make it true. My students don't realize that if if this contradicts this, one of them's wrong. They think that if they like them both, they're both right. I've been listening to the best-known biography in the English language, and it's called The Life of Johnson by Samuel Boswell. It was written in the uh, 1700s, and I've arrived at the 1770s, so it's right after the, right during the Revolutionary War, and Boswell lives, spends a lot of time with Johnson, and I listen to it when I drive, and I've been driving a lot recently, and as I drive, the most recent part I've listened to Boswell goes on and on and on and on and on about how Samuel Johnson absolutely hated lies. And so one of the things that was recorded this last week was Johnson um, talking to Boswell about a certain lady they both knew and that this lady would always exaggerate, you know? Okay? And... Johnson said to Boswell, you know, basically, truth doesn't matter to this woman. Would you please talk to her about this, right? And so I'm thinking about my world, and I'm thinking, you know, exaggeration is the least of our problems. Our infatuation with lies is such that if we just had people that exaggerated, it would be like a revival, And the problem is that our preachers today don't teach us the truth. They they pander to us, just like the State of the Union address of our presidents. And we're going to give you free drugs. Remember when Bush said that? And I just sat there thinking, would this man stop insulting me? 
Does he really think I don't know what he's doing? That he's just trying to make me like him by throwing money at me from the public treasury? But that's what all our preachers do. All our preachers preach in such a way that you will like them. And a preacher that preaches so that you'll like him is not helpful. He's just not helpful. And that's what a preacher's supposed to be is helpful. So I was talking about this out in the hall with two of our mothers in Israel. There are some women in this church that rise up to a level that I'll call them mothers in Israel. And you wouldn't be surprised to know that the name of one is Joyce and the name of the other is Anne. And so Joyce and Anne were there with their kids, and I was talking to them, and Joyce told me that there's a teacher that she knows who was teaching the fall. That's where we are in Genesis, the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve. She was teaching the fall to her children, and all her children come from Christian homes. In other words, they've grown up sitting under Christian preachers. And all the children were agreed, what? They were agreed that Adam and Eve are not to blame for sinning, Because Satan tempted them. In other words, Christian children today think that if they're tempted, their sin isn't bad. Because after all, who in their right mind can stand against temptation? They're what? Come on, say it. They are, every American is, they are what? Come on, say it out loud. Say it louder. Are you a victim? Every single one of you is a victim. That is your meta-narrative. That is the only meta-narrative that exists in the world today is victimhood. That's it. And the only thing that differs between us is how we're a victim and why. But we're all victims. You know, you're a victim of, of, you know, the grant-making process. You know, you're a victim of stupid people and toxicity, and, and you're, you're all victims of America, you know, and, and you're a victim of, oh, who knows. You know, I could look around, and every one of you presents as a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of you not letting me preach for two hours. <laughs> it's a joke. Sort of. <laughs> sort of, sort of, says Jody, who has to try to deal with my lack of discipline and how long I take preaching, <laughs> you know. How do you read the fall? How do you read the first three chapters of Scripture? If you're a nation of victims and you think that because you're tempted, it excuses you. How do you do that? Well, you have to be very careful in your choice of a pastor. The pastor has to pander to you. The pastor has to, has to, on the one hand, act as if this is God's book, but on the other hand, he has to be very understanding of your victimhood. And when he meshes them together in such a way that you're not aware that he's thrown away scripture, but you think he holds on to it, he's perfect. He's the perfect preacher. Now, how do we do this with Genesis 1 to 3? Well, these young children this teacher had do it by saying, well, they're not responsible for sin because they were tempted. Satan tempted it. Satan's the one that did the bad. Adam and Eve didn't do the bad. But most of us are more sophisticated than that. We're not going to say that, right? We're not going to say that because we're tempted and we sin that that absolves us, right? Are you all with me? And so how do we deal with it? Well, here's how we deal with it. We do not accept the Bible as history, as reality. We don't look at this as the, the, the chart of the elements. We don't look at it as an accountant's report. You know, we don't look at it as, um, you know, a recipe book. It's not objective, it's subjective. And how do we make it subjective? How do we lower it so that it's under us instead of above us. One of the most frequent ways we do this is by referring to this as what? As a narrative. We call it a a narrative. And here we are at the beginning of the Bible, and we call that the what? That's the Bible's meta-narrative. 
Now, maybe you haven't heard these words being used in English, so let me change it. This is the story. This is the drama. This is the movie. This is the play. This is the theater. Now, why do we do that? Well, we do it because in a decadent society, what matters to us is art. And the artists are the high priests, and in America today, it's movies. Movies set our truth, our feelings. Movies are the highest authority in our culture. We do not have the ability to process our lives without processing them through movies. You know, even our role-playing games have to be movies, essentially. And so when we come to Scripture... And what scripture is actually, actually, okay, watch me. Here's what scripture actually is. You ready? I talked about it in the first service, but I'll do it here. Watch me. This is scripture. It's harder and less forgiving and less giving than that wall. That's scripture. The Bible is true and all men are liars. Bible says about itself, thy word is truth. But we don't, we don't want it to be true. We want it to be a story because stories feel real to us. You know, we, every night we have to have a story before we go to bed. And it's not Pat the Bunny, you know. It's not Alexander and the Terrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. It's, it's, it's a movie. You know, if it's a woman, it's a chick flick. And if it's a man, it's like, kill them. And then we can go to sleep because we've had our narrative, which fits into our meta-narrative, and we read the first three chapters of Scripture And, well, you know, Christians have their narrative and their meta-narrative. And we begin to speak this way. Because it makes Scripture feel more true to us. If we think of it as if it were a movie. That's how sick we are. And so this is the reason that I abominate talk of the first three chapters of Scripture as being narrative or meta-narrative. No. God, it says in Romans 3, God is true, though all men be liars. This book will continue until heaven and earth pass away. Everything you use to judge this book will one day pass away. This book will stand firm. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away before a single jot, a single period, a single apostrophe of this book, before a single jot and tittle will pass away of God's law. And so, no, I will not call this a narrative, and I will not call it a meta-narrative. What we're reading in the first three chapters of Scripture is what? It is history. It is fact. And it's harder than that wall. It will never pass away. And no, Adam and Eve are not a tribe of hominids. My job is not to fit the first three chapters of this book into your epistemological frame of reference. I don't have to bow in front of your scientists. I don't have them to have them like me. As a matter of fact, I don't even need to be liked by, by professors at my seminary who are bowing down to the science and despise Tim Bailey. And I think, you know, if seminary professors despise me because I say I reject, I repudiate any science that contradicts the word of God, and if they don't like me, what am I supposed to do? If I start changing scripture to fit your desire to be able to go to school and fit in, how am I helpful to you? 
I'm simply saying that scientists have a higher authority than the authority of God. I'm not going to do it. And it's not because I'm stupid. It's because I fear God. And you know in Scripture there is absolutely no statement in Scripture that is more a condemnation of a people than when God says they have no fear of God. You know what it says in Hebrews? It says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Did you know it says that? And so what are you going to do? If you've gone through life being a victim and you stand before God, what are you going to do? Remember, 20 years ago, this cartoon in the New Yorker, I've never forgotten it. There's, there's this sort of wimpy, effeminate dude standing in front of the judge, and he's high and lifted up on his bench. You know how they sit way up there, right? All rise, honorable judge, walking in, right? And there's this little scrawny dude looking up at the judge, and he says, guilty with an explanation, your honor. And you're supposed to laugh. (laughs) It's a joke. But it's not a joke to us. Because we actually think we're going to be able to say that to God. We actually think that God is going to sit and listen to our excuses as to why we could not say no to pornography and why we had to commit adultery and why we have to love drugs and we have to love alcohol and why we have to pay lip service to evolution and why we have to... And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I'm Chinese. I'm United States American. I'm... You know, and everything is the politics of identity. And we're going to stand before God and say, well, I would have come to Jesus Christ except I was Chinese and America was a Christian nation. Those people were so decadent. And so I just couldn't bring myself to go under a religion that was claimed by the most oppressive nation on the face of the earth. It's like, okay. And so then you're going to talk about your daddy. And you're going to tell God that you couldn't come to him because your daddy was a preacher and he was a hypocrite. And you're going to tell God that you couldn't repent because it was your wife telling you your sins and she wasn't submissive. Listen, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there's not going to be one of us saying guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. Not one of us. Our mouths will be shut finally. The older I get, the more I fantasize about certain people's mouths just finally shutting. There are people I've spent decades listening to their excuses. And I have a lot of empathy and sympathy, trust me. If you talk to people that I counsel with, they'll tell you. It's not that I'm a coarse and nasty man who can't love people. But every time I sit and listen to excuses in my office for sin, I'm always fantasizing about this person giving that excuse to God. Because inevitably it ends up meaning that they can't repent. I'm not going to repent because I have an excuse. Guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. Yeah, I beat my children, but you don't understand. It's because my mother beat me. Yeah, I molested a little girl, but you don't understand. I was molested as a little boy. And you say, oh, nobody would ever say that. Uh, 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 yeah, they do. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Listen, if you really want to die a victim... I have the way for you to do it, okay? You want to know how to do it? The way you die as a victim is you just go to the first three chapters of Scripture and you read the account of Adam and Eve. And then you read in the Bible where it says, in Adam we all die. And then you say to God, it is absolutely unreasonable and unfair that I 
will die and be condemned and that I find in myself sin every minute of every day struggling to control me because of the sin of a man I never met who lived thousands of years before I was ever born. That is not just. (coughs) Now, all I'm doing is quoting the great mathematician and philosopher Pascal in his work, The Pensees. I just paraphrased him, but that's exactly what he wrote centuries ago. It's unreasonable that God would condemn us to die and that we would be filled with corruption because of the sin of a man who lived thousands of years before we did and we never met him. And then in this book, the next sentence is this. He says, and yet without this truth, we do not know ourselves. And, you know, honestly, if I were to divide between Christians and non-Christians, my dividing line would go precisely through that statement that I just gave you. And yet, without this truth, we do not know ourselves. Those who know themselves and love the truth of original sin in the fall. Thank you, dear brother. (laughs) It's like, thank you. I had a very interesting thing happen a week or so ago. Oh, thank you. And look, people are giving me I have a I have a I have a treasure house. Oh my. Don't tell the children. <coughs> well, I was gone. I went to a wedding up at um Bob and Debbie's church. Bob is an elder up at Christ the Word in Toledo. And my brother's son was getting married and in the middle of his sermon He's talking along like this, and then it just happened like that. He lost his voice. And afterwards, he said, that's never happened before. And I thought to my, he's six years younger than I am. And I thought to myself, dude, wake up and smell the roses. It's going to be happening to you all the time from here on out because you're my brother. (laughs) You know, and I remember my mother having that problem. Anyhow, his voice just went instantly. It was just like me. And so, come back to Pascal now, this mathematician in in France. I really don't know much about him, but that is one of my favorite quotes, and it's my favorite quote because my experience, and maybe this is just because I grew up in a Christian home, my experience has been that from the time I can remember anything, it has been very clear to me my bondage to sin. That's been the ordering principle of my existence. My unwillingness to honor God, my rebellion against God, my lying, my desire for things I shouldn't have. And so when I hear about the fall, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And then Pascal says, without this truth, we don't understand ourselves. I'm excited. Because all of a sudden I realized that God, his God in his wisdom, has, has given me the principle of original sin. That, that, that in Adam I died. That Adam is not some foreign creature that I've never met that lived thousands of years before me. Adam's my federal head. When he sinned, I sinned. And when he became corrupt, I became corrupt. And that because of his sin, I die. And that death is not the end of a natural process, but it's an enemy. In other words, that sin and suffering and wickedness and murder and all the things that we see going all around us, are because in Adam we die. That Adam's sin is my sin. It's your sin. And so when 
When Pascal says, and yet without this truth, we do not know ourselves. I just look around me and I just see a world filled with people who have not one iota of self-knowledge. This last week, I was with a man down in Louisiana. And I'd heard of this man from a couple in our church. They told me this man plagiarized his sermons. You know what plagiarism is? Some, some of us still know what plagiarism is. Some of us. Plagiarism is when you lift something without telling people you're lifting it, right? And, and the internet is a great, a great way to fight plagiarism, right? And so this guy, I had heard that he had plagiarized some of his sermons, right? But it's real controversial because when pastors sin, everybody talks about it and everybody has a different perspective on their sin, right? And so after lunch, I asked if, the, if we could have time alone. The other man left. And then I said to him, okay, tell me the story of the plagiarism. He said, well, here's what happened. I got out of seminary. And he said, I didn't know how to preach. And so I went to other preachers and I used their sermons because I thought that was a good thing. And I thought, well, yeah, that, you know, when I went into the ministry, I took a sermon of Spurgeon, and I read the whole sermon as my sermon one morning. And my brother David has done that with me, and I've done that with my brother David, you know. But I didn't say that to him. I just kept listening. He said, so then the people in our church began to fight. Or he said there was some controversy, and so it was a political issue, and so people found that I'd plagiarized, so they came after me for plagiarism. So then the presbytery got involved. Presbytery is the group of pastors and elders of a number of churches together. And he said, so presbytery talked to me, and he said, I went into the meeting with the presbytery, and he said, then I lied. And I thought to myself, you know what I did when he said I lied? I went like this, I went, <laughs> and then I realized that I, I giggled when a man said he lied, you know, and then I felt horrible because obviously I must not believe in truth if I giggle when a man tells me he lies. So then I began to look at why I had just giggled, and I said, I'm sorry, I said, that was scandalous for me to giggle when you said you lied, night. but um, I said, the reason that I giggled is I've been waiting my whole life to hear a reformed pastor say, I lied. (laughs) I said, here we believe in the depravity of man. But no reformed pastor ever cops to anything. And certainly not to lying. And here you just said, and I lied. And that's like one of the most refreshing things I've ever heard in my life. I said, you know, I was at a church where everybody was fighting about me, and what they all said was that I was a liar. And I said, I kept saying to all of them, no, I don't lie. And I just kept, and and, and as it happened, the things they said I had lied about, I hadn't lied about. They were true, all right? And so, oh man, I was just, I was just self-righteous in my righteousness. You know, I don't lie, I don't lie. You know, it went on and on. And I said, as I talked about it, I began to watch myself. You know, after all, I was telling everybody I wasn't a liar, you know. And I saw how often in a conversation, I would say something to someone, and I would not mean what they thought I meant. I mean something different, but they would hear me saying something I wasn't saying, and as I observed it, I saw that that actually was a more favorable construction of reality than what I was actually telling them, and it redounded to my glory. (laughs) Do you understand? Okay, let me explain it this way. So your daughter comes to you and she tells you that you should buy such and such for your wife because your wife wants it. And so you go online, you buy such and such for your wife, right? And you give it to her. And your wife says, how did you know that this is what I want? And you just, you say, sweetheart, I love you. Now, you know to a woman what that means. To one, what that means is, I know you. 
right? Yeah. And so what you're implying is that because you love her, you know her, and therefore you're able to anticipate the things that she wants. Now, lover, did I do this to you? Remember the, uh, remember the bracelet? And did you think that I had come up with that? Yeah. No, I didn't. And she cried. She was so joyful that I had come up with something that was beautiful for her. And because it was Michael that told me to buy it, you know, I mean, it's almost like me knowing my wife. I mean, to know Michael was to know my wife. Michael's my daughter, you know. Listen, let me tell you the truth. You lie constantly. You lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. That's the truth. The most innocent of you lie. You are a woman. You are a man. And therefore, you are a liar. There's somebody in here who I would say his highest principle in his life is that he will not lie. He's a man of his word. And so one time we were sitting at lunch and I said to him, you know, you are a liar. Week later, we're having lunch. He circled back to it. I want you to tell me how I lie. I'm going to make it right. And so I told him how he lies. And the minute I told him, he realized he could never make it right. Never. Because it had been a habit with him. Now, is that bad for that man to have that told to him? (laughs) It's not bad, is it? Huh? It's good. Why? Why is it good? Well, the reason it's good is because it magnifies Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no need for Jesus Christ if you don't lie. And you say, well, that doesn't matter. I'm jealous, and that's just as bad as lying. I say, nope, nope, you're not going to cop to being jealous and not lying. You're a liar and you're jealous. You say, wait a second. I say, yep, true, true. You're jealous, you're a liar, and you're a murderer. You say, oh, no, no, I've never murdered. And I say, Jesus says that if you look at a man and say, racha, fool, that you have committed murder. Well, I don't commit adultery. Jesus says you even look on a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so we come to the first three chapters of Genesis. And what we see there is that the serpent with the devil came to Adam through, through Eve, as through a mine. And God had said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so Adam, who was supposed to command Eve as her head, submitted to Eve and obeyed her, and he took the fruit and he ate it. And the Bible tells us immediately he and Eve hid their private parts from one another and from God. Why? Because they're corrupt now. Because now they gave off bad visions and bad smells. And those are just metaphors. I mean, they're real. But those are just metaphors for the corruption that's in us now. And so what do we do? Well, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it because we don't want to think about our lying. We don't want to think about our jealousy. We don't want to think about our bloodshed. And so what we say is, well, that's a narrative. That's a a meta-narrative. It wasn't really Adam and Eve. It was a tribe of hominids. You know what I've noticed? Any text that you refer to as a narrative or meta-narrative, you are superior to that text because every story exists to be used as you choose to use it. Does this make sense to you? 
And so the world is filled with conservative pastors who have no problem with you believing in evolution. Covenant Seminary has a professor of Old Testament. He has no problem with Adam and Eve being a tribe of hominids. In other words, a bunch of people, tribe, right? Hominids. In other words, people who don't stop picking their nose when you're watching them. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Hominids are subhuman. They don't even have the social graces to know what they're not supposed to do. And so we move from Adam and Eve, from a man who says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Does that sound like a hominid? She shall be called Isha, for she is taken from each. Does that sound like a savage? (laughs) No. No, he loved her. It's such a shock to us to learn that men in previous centuries loved their wives and their mothers and their daughters. And then we have a professor at our seminary, the most conservative in the country, who writes a paper and then a book And Tim Keller's just all on board with it. And then I ask you, if they've gotten rid of creation, if they've gotten rid of the seven days, if they've gotten rid of Adam and Eve, why on earth would they hold the line on my saying to you that you're a liar? Because you are in your federal head, Adam. And without the truth of Adam's sin and his fall, you cannot know yourself. Why would they preach against creation and and replace it with with millennia and and millions of years and tribes of... And then turn around and tell you that you are a liar. You see? And so we come to the first three chapters of Scripture and it tells us that God made Adam from the ground and he made Eve from Adam's body. It tells us that God gave Adam authority over the animals, that there's a pecking order between man and animals. It tells us that Adam was created first and then Eve and there's a pecking order between man and woman. It tells us that God forbade them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but every other tree was allowed to them including the tree of what? Of life. And so at this conference I was at last week, this professor, well, he's not a professor, but this brilliant man, gets up and talks about how there was death in the Garden of Eden because if there hadn't been, they were breeding like rabbits and it would have been filled like a rabbit thing. And that's what he said. It was, it was all about rabbits, too many rabbits. You know, heaven was small enough that if there weren't death, in the Garden of Eden, then there would have been rabbits everywhere. Rabbits named Little Adam and Little Eve. And that's what happens every time with a meta narrative. You take authority over it, and then it's all about you, your smart thoughts your desire to fit in, your desire to be an intellectual, and then you surround yourself with a bunch of pastors who are gullible. And they just love hearing you pontificate about things you are completely ignorant of. And so Adam and Eve become a tribe of hominids, and and you've got death in the Garden of Eden, and you've got all this crud going on, you know? And are you a liar? Am I a liar? As quickly... The story of Scripture, listen, the story of Scripture is not you and me sitting next to each other and and thinking how wonderful I am and me thinking how wonderful you are. History, as Scripture records it, the purpose of it is for us to understand ourselves, why we are in bondage and where we get freedom from. And the freedom comes 
through Jesus. The freedom comes through Jesus. Through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Once you go under the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's intimidating, you know, because you have to give up all your pride. You have to cop a plea. And it's not for a lower sentence. You're copying a plea to a capital sentence. In other words, you're going to die. You know, it's one thing to cop a plea, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll plead guilty to hunting out of season as long as you'll give me a shorter penalty. I had a friend in, 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 at Northern Illinois University. He was real rich. And there was somebody on our hallway that he, he, we all despised the guy. And the guy managed to find a girl that would go out with him on a date. And so they were sitting in the car making out. That's what we used to do. And uh, he had a rifle. And so he saw them making out in the parking lot, so he went into his Mercedes Benz and took the rifle out of the Mercedes Benz and went and put it up against the window and made like he was going to shoot the guy. And all of us just thought it was hilarious. This guy, you know, I mean, men, these are men. You know, men have a different sense of humor, you know. Well, the cops busted him. And eventually it came out that the cops said that if he would plead guilty to hunting without a license. Somehow I think his his physician father might have had something to do with that being what he had to plead. Hunting out of season, you know. I've never forgotten that, you know. But with God, that's not what we do. We don't go up to him and say, I'll plead guilty to hunting out of a season if if you'll give me a good wife and you won't take the lives of any of my children and and they won't get sick and, and, you know. No, God says, inside of us dwells no good thing. And you will not begin to have faith in my son that I sent to save you until you acknowledge you are a liar. You don't lie. You are a liar. You are a murderer. You are an adulterer. You're a sodomite. You are green with envy. You are a manipulator of your husband. You're a rebel against his authority. You are absolutely unloving to your whole family. You don't provide for them. And all of a sudden, we begin to understand ourselves. (laughs) See, there I go again, giggling. But honestly, I don't know any other way of communicating it. All of a sudden, you're free. You are not the festering pustule of the world. The entire world is festering pustules. And the company of Christians are those who see festering pustules everywhere and therefore have hope. (laughs) And you go, no, no, no. When you see festering pustules everywhere, you're not having hope. And I say, yes, you are, because now we understand ourselves. Now we see why the Son of God, who was perfect, had to come and die on a cross because there was no other hope for us. Since the fall, we are utterly corrupt. You are utterly corrupt. I am utterly corrupt. Every Chinese is utterly corrupt. And every American is abhorrently corrupt. As a matter of fact, I would say about Chinese and Americans, what Luther said about notorious sinners and clean sinners. I would say America is infinitely worse than China. And the reason is America has generation after generation of Christian teaching and has rejected it. Does that make sense to you? But really, in the final analysis, it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. And if we won't cop a plea with no explanation, Your Honor, to God, then he says to you, okay, fine. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that to judgment. 
And there will be no appeal at the judgment seat of God except the righteousness of Jesus Christ. None. Absolutely none. And it's not because God isn't loving. God is perfect love. But you have heard the name of Jesus. You have had proclaimed to you the cross of Jesus Christ. And now is the hour of decision. What are you going to do? You're going to spend your life writing the explanations that you're going to give God? And finding a pastor that's going to pander to you in his preaching so that you can have a high image of yourself? You're going to talk about the first three chapters of Genesis as narrative and meta-narrative? You're going to think of Adam and Eve as a tribe of hominids? You're going to get your doctorate? You're going to get tenure? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? Listen, you don't need to worry about me. My wife worries about me. If you want me to have all my failures pointed out, my wife does a good job. You don't need to worry about your husband or wife sitting next to you or your parents. You don't need to worry about your father and mother and your grandparents. You don't need to keep keeping track of how you're standing vis-a-vis. Give it up! Give it up! You're not going to be able to talk to God and say, well, God, you know, I was born into a day and a time when everybody was a victim, and I wasn't as bad about it as other people were, but I was a victim. My, my father abused me. And you sit there and you say to me, how could you speak of the wickedness and pain of abuse in such a light way? I say, listen, there are a lot of people here that I've gone through their abuse with, and they know I don't speak of it in a light way. But I, I guarantee you that every single one of those people will tell you that when they were abused, it made their sin more clear to them. If they're Christians... Well, that's it. Time for us to go home. I didn't read scripture. I've been bad. But, you know, I come to the text, and today we were going to hear about the curse of the serpent and the curse of Eve and the curse of Adam. And my wife last night sitting on the sofa, and she says, Jack Collins is the one that thought what they're doing about evolution in the reform world is good. And I think to myself, okay, Jack Collins is this professor at Covenant. Why is world asking him questions? And I realize there's a gap between me preaching Genesis to you and you listening. Because you think it's a narrative. You think it's a meta-narrative. And you don't think you lie. And how am I going to get you to hear the curses of the serpent, the curse of Eve, and the curse of Adam? If you think it's a story, like a movie. And so, all right, I took a week off. We'll come back to it next week. If you want to read about it before, then I have the manuscript. But listen. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You will face God. You will not face me. And God is holy. And there is no forgiveness for sins except through the shed blood of his precious son. None. And that's why his son said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you may have no part in me. And if you think that's intolerant of Jesus, if you think Jesus is an egotist telling you that, call it a meta-narrative. Nothing's lost. (laughs) But if you feel inside of you the burning of your sin, 
and the bondage of it. You remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? You remember this with the disciples? And they said, well, some say, you know, Elijah and some this and some, you know, that you're a prophet. And Jesus said, who do you say I am? And that lovely man, Peter, (laughs) he said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah. Thou art the Messiah, the son of the most high God. And Jesus said what? Remember what Jesus said then? Anybody know? Anybody here know? Yeah, you got to speak up, dude, if you're going to be a preacher. No, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but, but my heavenly Father. And so the sweet thing today is all of us who know our sin and abominate it, hate it, have had our sin revealed to us by the heavenly Father. And therefore can join Peter in saying, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. And we put all our hope in him. We put all our faith in him. We put all our trust in him. And we have freedom in Christ. And you say, well, no, we're still sinners. I lie. I say, yes. But day by day, the Holy Spirit makes you less a liar. (laughs) You say, well, it doesn't seem like that way to me. And I say, ask your wife, ask your husband. They'll tell you it's less. Ask your mother. Unless it's my mother, and then she'll tell me it's worse. (laughs) That was the way my mother was. (laughs) My mother was just... (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) Maybe not. So let's worship God. Let's worship the Son. Let's have our hope in the Son, not in who we are, but in who he is. And we can't take pride in in trusting in him because what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to us, but the Father in heaven. We're his fruit. Let's, Let's sing. Let's sing. Let's worship.